Before we embark on this week's podcast, I just want to say that it was recorded at the beginning of October, when we were, oh happy days, temporarily out of our coronavirus lockdown. As so often at the moment, things have moved fast since then, and we in the UK have moved first to a tier system and then the second national lockdown, which we're in right now. But what my guest Nikki Gerrard has to say about John's campaign challenging the government over care home visiting remains very much the same. Government guidance was updated in the middle of October, but John's campaign said at the time that this only made things worse, and they are not giving up the fight. And now... On with the show. Hello and welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. She's no longer with us. But one of the main things that mum's dementia taught me and my family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work as a dementia blogger and campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable condition. Not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference to those with dementia and their families. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this too. To many listeners, today's guest may be best known as the co-founder of the very successful John's campaign. The simple message of which is that the carers of those with dementia should have the same rights as the parents of sick children to accompany them to hospital. She is also an award-winning journalist, working first at the New Statesman and then The Observer as deputy literary editor, feature writer and executive editor. In 2016, she was awarded the prestigious Orwell Prize for journalism for exposing Britain's social ills. And as if this weren't enough, she's written, I think, seven books, while she and her husband, fellow journalist Sean French, have together in a remarkable writing partnership co-authored by My Reckoning, 20 best-selling psychological thrillers, several of which have been adapted for television and film. She is, of course, Nikki Gerard, or Nikki French when collaborating with her husband. And John's campaign was inspired by and named after her late father, the doctor and scientist John Gerard. For 10 years, John, who had a deep love of nature, lived well with dementia. He was, says Nikki, going gradually into the darkness. But this ended with a sudden rupture when John went into hospital with leg ulcers and remained there for five weeks. Strict visiting hours, plus an outbreak of norovirus, meant that this man, who'd entered healthy, mobile, articulate and contented, emerged skeletal, immobile, inarticulate, unable to recognise people he'd lived with for decades. John's experiences in the resulting campaign led Nikki to explore dementia practically through talking to doctors, carers and those living with it, and more profoundly in philosophical, almost existential ways. 
The result is her quite beautiful book, What Dementia Teaches Us About Love. What happens when memories are lost? Who are we then, she writes. If we are out of our mind, where have we gone? If we've lost the plot, what happens to the story we're in? Even at the bitter end, I never thought my father wasn't himself. Although at the same time, I felt he had lost himself. He was gone, but he remained. He still had his sweetness. It lived on in us. She examines the language around dementia, the way we unconsciously diminish, dehumanise even, those with the condition, describing them as gone, no longer here. She considers the stigma and shame and the vital, undervalued role of the carer. A word, she says, in whose small frame lives a great jostle of seething emotions, an army of feelings that collide and clash, which I have to say, is one of the best concise definitions of that word that I've heard ever. Most recently, as coronavirus has swept across the globe and the doors of this country's 21,000 care homes have clanged shut, John's campaign has turned its attention to those who live in them, 70% of whom have dementia. Their relatives have been unable to visit them for weeks, months, leaving these vulnerable people bewildered and heartbroken because they think they've been abandoned by those they love. Which is why John's campaign has asked the government for a judicial review into the guidance around care homes. Its lawyers arguing that the rules have been drawn up without attention to human rights legislation and are therefore invalid. Family carers, say Nikki and her fellow campaigners, are not visitors, but vital to the health and selfhood of people with dementia and should be recognised as such and given the same protection, testing and status as key workers. In the name of infection control, great harm is being inflicted, Nikki wrote recently in The Guardian. People can die of heartbreak. Nikki Gerard, an enormous welcome to Well, I Know Now. Oh, it's really nice for me to be here. Thank you, Pippa. It's a pleasure. It's really nice to be talking. I'd like to start very topically, actually, with that judicial review I've just mentioned and ask you where you're up to with it now. Yeah, no, I'm glad you've asked because I, where I'm up to is up to my eyeballs with it. But <laughs> I mean, where we're up to is we submitted our case to our lawyers, Lee Day, who are the kind of one of the foremost human rights lawyers mm. in the mm. country. Mm. And they wrote to the government and the government was given 14 days mm. to respond. In fact, it took 21 days to respond. Mm. And they rejected our claims, which may, means that now we are in litigation and we will issue proceedings in the middle of it. I'm learning all this new legal vocabulary. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I know what I'm talking about. What I do know is that we feel very strongly, and on behalf of thousands of families, we feel this, that there's a terrible damage and trauma is being done. And the legacy of what's going on now in care homes is going to be just incalculable in terms of kind of suffering and trauma and guilt and grief and that the guidelines that the government have laid down are very vague we think rather incoherent and they pay no attention to individual human rights or to the disability act mm -hmm. um, and we've had we feel it cannot be the case that we won't win but of course we, we're not lawyers and one of the things 
about it is from the very beginning, from March, when the lockdown started, we have been getting the most heartbreaking messages from families and stories which feel kind of almost scarcely believable about what is going on in care homes. But it's not care homes' fault because care homes think they're following the guidance. In March, it was bad enough. In April, it was worse. It's now been seven months. And I mean, you know, you know as well as anybody that time makes the difference here. Time turns kind of pain into suffering, into a story of suffering. And that's what we're thinking about is like it's seven months has made kind of grief into something closer to tragedy on a kind of mass scale. So we've had stories. I mean, I'll give you one example. There was somebody who who rang me up the other day. She'd been married to her husband for over 50 years. And after five or six months of not having seen him at all, was finally allowed a window visit. Mm. And he barely recognised her. And then when he did recognise her, got just kept holding out his arms to be hugged. And she kept saying, no, she couldn't hug him. And they were both weeping. And she said she can't go back because it was too traumatic. It wasn't a consolation. It was just mental torture for both of them. And that story is repeated over and over and over again. Or people who aren't allowed to be at the deathbeds of the people that they love. Although there there is an exception made for end of life. But end of life is such a vague concept Mm. that sometimes people are finally allowed in after six months when the person is unconscious and don't even know that the person they wanted too late, all that really, time. Isn't it? It's too late. It's too late. So that's a very long answer to your question of where we are. Where we are is on the threshold mm. of this next mm. phase in which we will be in legal proceedings with the government. And then what we want is for it to be dealt with swiftly, for it to be expedited. Absolutely. I mean, law can move very slowly, but judicial reviews are supposed to move swiftly. And so we think, we really hope that by Christmas, this will be sorted but you know nothing, oh, well, all, all, nothing is all power to you I mean it's, it's absolutely brilliant and I think we all you know well everybody the whole country the it's not just people affected by dementia we owe you so much for taking all this along with everything else that you do on because I know it's it's huge and one of the things that you emailed me beforehand what we're really talking about is human connections isn't it it's connections which of course because of the pandemic have been Broken, ruptured. Abruptly severed. You are quite right, yes. And and actually, from the very get-go, the campaign was founded because, as you said in your lovely introduction, because of what happened to my father. And what happened to my father was that when he went into hospital, his body was treated, his leg ulcers Mm -hmm. were healed. I mean, it took far too long. Mm -hmm. Five weeks in hospital for leg ulcers is completely mad. Mm -hmm. And actually, people with dementia should not go into hospital, if at all possible. So his body was healed. But while he was there, and he must have felt utterly abandoned Mm -hmm. by us and not known why he wasn't visited, Mm -hmm. while he was there, all those things that Mm -hmm. people like you and me have done for our parents, Mm -hmm. like talking to them, helping them walk, helping them eat, but most of all, looking into their eyes, saying their name, Mm. touching them, that's the power Mm. of touch, just telling them you love them, kind Mm. of just accompanying them, being their gatekeeper, being Mm. their memory, keeping them kind of tethered to the world that they know and love. All those things 
those little links were snipped one by one and he just drifted away and could never come back. And it was that that I learnt far too late, far too late for my father, at least. That sense that you are just so precarious when you have dementia. Your links to the world are so vital and they're so precarious. Mm. And we need to be aware of that and attentive to that and us, you and me and people like us who've gone through the experience mm. need to communicate it to other people. Because as you say, mm. you begin from zero, really, yeah, when do. somebody you love has dementia. Mm. You don't know about mm. it until you have to know about mm. it. Mm. And it's very sudden. And uh, Well, it's not sudden. I mean, dementia isn't sudden. It creeps up on you. But you're, you're suddenly plunged into this place, aren't you? Um, and it yeah. Is, yeah. So as you say, and as I said at the end of the introduction, you know, in the name of infection control, great harm is being inflicted because... You cure one bit of the body, but you're doing massive harm to another bit. You think some things are measurable. So leg ulcers, broken yeah, bones. Yeah, kind of, yeah, there, yeah. there are things in the body that are measurable, and yeah. then there are things that aren't measurable. Yeah. But that, that does not mean they're not so important. Absolutely. But we tend to address what's measurable, don't we? Mm, we absolutely do. So to take you back to your dad on, on that, actually, your father, Nicky, there's a wonderful description at the beginning of your book, and I've never really seen a description of dementia or somebody watching somebody they love with dementia put like that I mean that's why you're so good with words because you really make people think you certainly sort of provoke me um you're describing your father I think I may have got this wrong but I think it's in Sweden and he's swimming in a lake at twilight and the way you put it is that the edges of the self are soft they're thin and porous yeah, it's extraordinary. The edges of the self are soft. And you felt that your father and the world were one. He already had dementia. But he, at that point, he was content. But at the same time, it was the loneliest sight. To me, that really sums up what you were just saying, that it, people are very delicate. They're very fragile. The balance is very precarious. And looking after that is is so important, isn't it, when somebody's got dementia? It so is. I mean, I began the book with that moment, as you say. It was the year before he went into hospital and he was still well. And there was something about, so he had a sauna with us. We managed to get him into a sauna because he loved saunas very much because he associated them when he, with when he was a young man living in Finland briefly. Right. And then we put him into the lake and it was just me and Sean and then him, but we might as well have not been there. Mm. And as you say, it was this, it was twilight, these long fugitive evenings in Sweden that they, they never quite get dark. Mm. And he was singing, he was singing this song and I wish I knew what the song was. I think I'd never heard it before. And he was swimming. It was like him in the world and there was nobody else in the world. And there was something about that moment, especially with my father, who was such a man of nature. He was so in tune with kind of the earth and the water and trees and flowers and little insects. He kind of, he belonged to nature much more than he belonged to kind of any other bit of his life, really, I'd say. And so there was something both extraordinarily sad about that sight as if he was gone from us in some way but also very very comforting and very comforting in this very mysterious way about what is it Mm -hmm. to be in the world Mm -hmm. and who are we in the world and how much and the work that thing about you know 
you kind of flow out into the world and the world flows into you. And it's this mysterious communication, which you sometimes feel. I think we all sometimes feel it. Mm. And it's not even happy or sad. It's just mysterious, the mysteriousness of what it is Mm. to Mm. kind of be in the world and you're part of it and you're separate from it. And that sense of being poor. I mean, one of the things that I've grappled with in the book, in the campaign, just thinking about dementia is... You know, we all need to be a bit porous. We know we know those people who in life are completely sealed off. They're hermetically sealed and the world and relationships don't properly touch them. They're very, very protected. Mm. And that's not ideal. Mm-hmm. In my version of what it is to be human, that's not ideal because that kind of reciprocal nature of being alive and how, yes. you know, Yes, I know exactly what you mean. They have a sort of carapace, don't they? And it's extremely difficult to get through. Yes, yeah. So that's not ideal. On the other hand, when people are far down the road Mm. of dementia, Mm. when they've lost all defences against the world and the world is kind of pouring into them and they're pouring out into the world, neither is that very good because you've lost that kind of sense of self, really. You've lost that way of having a self and communicating with other selves. Mm. So, Dad, I think that that point in the lake, Mm. he kind of exemplified all of those things. And I think about it really a lot Mm. for kind of in both comfort and distress. Mm. Mm. That's actually just a stray slightly, but another thing I've never really heard put in the way you put it was that Absolutely, this this sort of freedom, this inhibition, almost this this letting out of things that we spend a lifetime really learning. You know, from a very early to a little tiny weeny child will start doing poos all over the floor because they haven't yet learned to <laughs> yes. to keep those things in. There are certain things that you must keep very private as a person, yes. and that's a civilized society. You know, we don't want everybody going around pooing everywhere normally. <laughs> but but then what happens with people in advanced dementia? Is of course, they lose that societal inhibition. Obviously, this has its problems, but in other ways, I'm thinking now of work, you know, I've seen with people with music, and I did a piece about some really um, internationally renowned opera singers, and they were going into care homes and things, and uh, one of the opera singers was was good enough to be very truthful and say to me, do you know, when I was first asked to do this, I said, well, you know, I perform on the stage at Covent Garden, I'm sorry, but I don't really <laughs> go into care homes, yeah. and then she said, but do you know what, it was the most extraordinary thing I've ever done. It was the most powerful performance. I I completely take back what I said. And I said, well, explain why that was. And she said it was because, well, various reasons, of course, but one of them was about what we're talking about, Nikki. It was about this fact. She said, the audience were not at all restrained. You know, if they're at Covent Garden or wherever they are, you're sort of constrained, A, because you're all sitting in seats and you can't do anything. But if they didn't like you, the people in the care home, boy, would they let you know. You know, they, they start shouting out and saying, you're a load of nonsense. Or, you know. There are so many things I want to say. I mean, this is just because that thing about inhibition. I mean, one of the chapters in my book is about shame. Okay. Hmm. And I think in the first stages of dementia, and I don't know if you found this with your experience, is that it can be agonising because shame Shame is not a small thing. We think of it as a trivial emotion. It is 
massive it can it can ruin people's mm. lives but mm. also it is like it's a necessary thing as well and as you say that thing about what we learn in order to be kind of social being in order to be able to kind of have a kind of civilized life is we learn inhibition which is monitored mm. by shame so we learn mm-hmm. to be continent mm-hmm. we learn not to speak what we feel mm-hmm. we learn to have secrets good secrets mm-hmm. are so necessary mm-hmm. so we learn to control we learn to control ourselves there's this great gap between the self that we know about that kind of maelstrom inside us and the self that we present to the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and for some people the gap is too huge and for some for some people you know that 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 is it's a very kind of delicate thing isn't it getting it right getting that gap right and that goes really quickly with dementia and I've witnessed over and again both with my father but over and again with people I've kind of talked to and spent time with is the agony of people in those early stages knowing they're getting it wrong but not quite knowing how it can be really upsetting to watch that and distressing and then people's worlds shrink and shrink and they don't dare go out and they don't dare show themselves and they don't dare talk to people because they're so ashamed of themselves and that is terrible and but then of course there comes this time when they lose the knowledge mm-hmm. that they've lost the knowledge of themselves. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. maybe that's a blessing. And the people in your care homes expressing what they feel to the opera singers, there's something very joyful about that. And then and I've definitely met people with dementia who are happier because they've lost some of their kind of self control mm-hmm. than they used to be when they were a very controlled mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And actually that's one of the other things that you and I know is that how many different ways there are of having dementia. I mean, it is, it is, it's the wrong word, isn't it? It has to be, it should be plural. I mean, to say dementia, we people think, oh, memory loss. Absolutely. But actually, there are as many dementias as there are people who have dementia. And it's so much connected to how they were before and how what their relationships are like. Absolutely, and... absolutely. And also, just before we move on a little bit, fascinating that sometimes I've spoken to several people now, really, who obviously the the children of people with dementia generally are themselves middle-aged because it's generally an illness of old age. And so people in the middle age will say, gosh, and do you know what happened? My relationship with my mother had been quite difficult, never really got to know her very well. And then in her dementia, we made this extraordinary connection. You know, it can have these, I hesitate to say silver linings, but it can throw out these almost anomalies of where people can get tremendous joy from it, which is is weird. And it is is weird, but also it so needs to be said that Mm. dementia, Mm. which is dementia, I can only think of it as a terrible thing but on the other hand it brings with it extraordinary gifts and there are many ways that people can have really good lives and a kind of it can be an adventurous new chapter and that people can learn a lot from it and learn a lot about the person who has dementia but also just learn a lot about themselves and mm. and, that, and I think one of the things is that because we are so terrified of the disease I mean it is as you know the disease that people are now most scared yeah. of getting and I'm definitely most scared of getting yeah, Every, of anything me, I am me so scared one of the perils of what <laughs> we do actually isn't it, it? We're so close it is to one of the, I am so scared of getting but on the other hand people are so scared that they 
keep they hold it at bay they don't want to acknowledge it in people that they love or in themselves and that makes it you know one of the things that makes dementia so terrifying is the way that we deal with it yeah or don't deal with it Mm. or don't deal with it which makes it infinitely worse and then you know there are examples in my book of people who've just gone into hiding with it and then it runs amok it can just be like a monster getting into your house or it can be dealt with beautifully by the person who has it and the people who accompany them and it can be infinitely rewarding whilst being infinitely sad yeah i know you know jenny dutton who i've also interviewed yes and what a wonderful woman absolutely we've now (laughs) struck up an incredible bond over coconut buns which uh, (laughs) (laughs) she sent me the recipes (laughs) anyway she was saying that she, (laughs) she was capable of things her mum's dementia made Jenny aware that she was capable of things she never thought she would be capable of. You know, it taught her things about herself, about Jenny, I mean, that she yeah. didn't know. You know, they, they, I didn't know, actually, Nikki, that you won the Orwell Prize, I'm ashamed to say, for an article, in fact, about dementia called Words, Failures, Dementia and the Arts, which brilliantly explores what it is to be oneself, what it is to be me. And when, through dementia, we sort of lose that... And you end it with this paragraph. I think of the people I've known and loved who have spent their last years in the hidden land of dementia from which none return. We come into life with nothing and gradually we build up the vast, rich world of the self. Language and knowledge and relationships and belongings and experience and memory and love. Above all, memory and love. All of these fall away as the life returns to that state of nothing, when we cannot even say, I am, when we cannot. Yet still the old man waves his fork into the air. Perhaps he hears music. Now, for anybody who hasn't sort of read your book, they won't know the significance of the old man waving his fork, but you open and close the article which won your award with this story of the old man waving his forks. And I think, could you just tell us the story of the old man waving his fork? Because I think it's illuminating. Yeah, well, it was illuminating for me. So where I used to live in North London, many years ago now, there was an old man that I used to see almost daily standing on the road near near my house and... He was old, he was a bit dishevelled, sometimes kind of his buttons weren't done up properly or he looked a bit unkempt Mm. and he would stand on the pavement just near the traffic and he would wave his arms in the air and he'd usually be holding a piece of cutlery, a spoon or a fork, usually a fork, and he looked like he had dementia and that's what I assumed. Mm. Sometimes he'd look distressed or agitated and sometimes he would look quite happy actually. And then one day he just disappeared and I never saw him again. And then a few weeks later, I saw his picture in the paper. It was his obituary. And it turned out that this old man had been a very distinguished musicologist and a conductor. And he'd written a lot about Beethoven and Bach. And I suddenly thought, that's what he was doing when he was standing on the road waving his fork in the air. He was conducting. He was conducting the traffic. He was conducting the people. And he was listening to music Mm. in his head. And so suddenly this image, which had been one of kind of chaos Mm -hmm. and agitation, suddenly became something 
completely different. It became an image of trying to order something, of listening to something, of hearing something, of having music in his head. And it was a revelation to me, partly because it made something that felt quite painfully upsetting not so upsetting. Mm, (laughs) And it was also a different reality. But also it just showed me how little we know when we look at things, how little we see, how little we can read things, how many different ways there are of reading something. And over and over again, I think that when I meet people who have advanced dementia, in a way that feels kind of haunting and upsetting and rebuking, you just don't know what it is that's going on inside the head. We can try and try, we have to strive to know Mm. what's going on. Mm. And every so often they can show us not usually through words, but through other signs. And we have to learn better with them and then just with everybody in the world, really. We have to learn better to understand all the different secret languages there are of expressing the hidden self. And one of the things that I've endeavoured to think about in the book and in the campaign of things is that right up to the moment that somebody dies, Mm. there are ways of accessing that secret self, that the kind of the body is kind of bashed about and damaged, the brain is damaged and declining, all forms of communication are being closed off one by one. But there are usually ways of accessing them. You talk about music in the care homes. The power of music Mm. is like an astonishing miracle. The power of poetry, the power of touch, of just Mm. holding on to somebody. Mm. And actually... The thing that almost made me write the book, I mean, I wasn't going to write a book because I thought my father's a private man. I can't write about him. But then I needed to write about dementia and the meaning of dementia. One of the things that made me really want to kind of work it out through writing about it Mm. is what does it mean when we say someone has a self? And Mm. what does it mean Mm. when we say that self has gone, that they've gone? You know, we talk about people with dementia as if they're no longer there. Oh, And I do it. And I've done it so many times. And I've talked about myself in that way as well. We say they're gone. You know, they're the living dead. The kind of lights are out. There's no one there. Yeah, I once or twice referred to my mother in the past with my brother when we were talking about before she actually died. And we suddenly caught ourselves doing it. And we looked at each other and, you know, said, oh, God, you know, Yes, and she's yes, still here. Yes, she's still, and you, you can, and there is that kind of double sense that they aren't there and that they are there. And you see that when you go into hospital and you see, hear doctors talking over the bed mm-hmm. of the patient with dementia, or nurses who are thoroughly kind of kind and good and caring. Mm-hmm. But there is a way of reducing them to an object, to somebody who's there but who isn't there. You don't need to think of as a subject. Mm-hmm. Who you can think of as a bed blocker. Who you can think of as a burden. And that is a terrifying way of dehumanizing somebody who is still with us so that it was that kind of grapple between what it is to have a self and I think there's a really important distinction to be made between having a sense of self having an identity now I feel that once somebody is really in the last stages of dementia their sense of self their ability to say I am their ability to know who they are their ability to have reciprocal relationships that has gone. That kind of social being has gone. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, in a way that remains very uncanny to me, mm-hmm. somehow their self remains. It's and that we there. have to acknowledge yeah. that. Yeah. It is still there. Yeah. So as you said at the beginning, you know, with my father, I felt both those things 
very powerfully at the same time. I felt he had lost every single thing that made him John Gerard. Everything that you could say about him was no longer there. And yet, at the same time, I absolutely knew that John Gerard was still there, that somehow everything that had kind of marked him and made him in his life was somehow lodged in that disintegrating body and brain of his. Mm-hmm. And then, actually, because we've, I haven't sort of highlighted them, but we have actually talked through two of your, your things you know now. I mean, one is that somebody is always there, which is what we're talking about now. And the first one was the importance of connections, which I sort of highlighted. The third thing you were very keen to talk about, and I think this is fascinating and is linked to what we've just been talking about, is, I mean, again, I, you know, your way with words is so good. The importance of the hard and necessary work of grief and mourning. This is bound up, I think, with the fact that they've, in a sense, already gone, but they haven't. And then they do. And a lot of people I talk to whose parents or loved ones die with dementia, and of dementia, say to me, I was so surprised because I thought I'd done my grieving. And then I was really taken aback at this enormous grief when they actually died. And You've also talked about that little quote I gave in the intro, the way that your father's sweetness lived on in you. And I I felt that so strongly after my own, uh, particularly my father actually died. I suddenly saw, and I'd heard the tenor, Alfie Bow, had said after his father died, I suddenly for the first time looked at my hands and thought, those are my dad's hands. And he said, I never did that before. But it was sort of like once he'd gone, I suddenly saw them and I did that because I've definitely got my dad's hands and I don't know why I was prompted <laughs> by Alfie both and I suppose you're getting older and you look in the mirror and you see things but this sense that they live on in you but of course this is all very contradictory and difficult when they're still there anyway and they're not yeah. and they are I yeah. think the, the complexities of grief with dementia are so difficult so tell us yeah. about this yeah, I mean, I think the complexities of grief anyway and and being bereaved are, are just, it's something that we spend our whole life trying to learn, really, or having to learn. And it's interesting, that thing about that you're recognising how your parents live on in you. I mean, I think one of the things that when we're young, we like to feel that we're just purely individual, mm-hmm. <laughs> newly minted, yeah. self-invented. <laughs> yeah. We have agency, we have independence. Um, we and have we're invincible, aren't we? We are, yeah. we are invincible. And then we, as we get older ourselves, we suddenly understand that actually agency is an overused word and independence is an overused mm-hmm. word. And that we're so intimately linked with yeah. the people who've gone before us and the people who come after us. And mm-hmm. we're, you know, there's something rather controlling about that thought yeah, like those kind of all those links I think that what we were talking about just before about that sense that people are gone and not gone that you've lost them and yet they remain and the guilt of feeling that the guilt of oh, thinking yeah. the guilt of feeling that they might as well be dead mm-hmm. and yet they're alive and, and sort so of wanting always, them to go as well oh my goodness and you do want them to go mm-hmm. and to be honest I think this links to the kind of enormous grief and burden that carers yeah. carry you do want them to go and you want them to go in an unselfish way yeah because they need to be released, released? Exactly. from a life that is no longer anything but a burden for many people. Mm. But also you want it 
speaking for myself, and I know that lots of carers must feel that because they're not just saints, they're people. You want it for yourself because it's agonizing and it's such hard work and you just think, go now and yeah. release me into my own life again yes it is so hard and but then you're wishing them dead you're kind of wishing them dead and then when they die you you, you just want them back you just want them back just for a little bit longer just to say the last few words that you never said and to apologize for ever having wanted them to have gone because you suddenly realize that even when though they were a kind of ragged body of bones and you thought there was nothing there there was they were you knew your father or your mother or your partner so I think letting yourself off the hook yeah. of that guilt and knowing that you were just being human yeah. <laughs> you were just being human and that you did love them that is so hard and I think lots of people need a lot of help with that and one of the help with that they need is to know that everybody feels that yeah. nobody's a saint you can't go through that process yeah. of losing someone to dementia without feeling anger grief rage disgust sometimes yeah. Yeah. dementia these, these is such emotions a bodily that you don't illness. speak these yeah. emotions which are so taboo and yet everybody yeah. feels need to be acknowledged and then the other thing which is a more kind of acceptable thing but equally hard is letting grief becomes something it goes from something that's outside of oneself like a kind of great big brutal force in the world pummeling you and making you kind of feel physically ill with the loss of it mm. to inside yourself because actually people dread endings we all dread endings we yeah. don't want to talk about our own death or other people's mm -hmm. death endings are kind and when somebody has dementia there is a kindness in endings and there's a way in which that kind of taking the beloved object of one's affection from being an object into just being part of oneself. And, and that doesn't mean it's kind of you ever get over it. I hate that thing of getting over it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you don't get over it, but you get it into you. You, you know, it becomes That's part so of you. interesting. I wrote about what I call the complexities of grief. And in fact, this was about my father who didn't have dementia. My mother was the one with dementia, but it was awful. You know, this man who'd been so clever and was reduced to lying in bed, completely immobile, couldn't speak, couldn't eat, was being fed by a peg tube. And even the consultant said, we don't quite know why he's not dying. But I think it was A, because he was scared of dying, and B, because my mother was still alive and he felt this tremendous guilt because he'd put, oh, we, we'd put her in a nursing yeah. home. Anyway, sorry, this is... but 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 the... No, I had to fight, I had to fight for, for NHS continuing healthcare for him and it was getting very, very stressful because he was running out of money because he's two living carers and I had to have counselling. I was getting myself in such a state my husband said, you're angry all the time and I was sort of had this stereo of my mother and father. Anyway, I was going to a counselling session and uh, they were sort of started, how's your week been? And I said, well, it's extraordinary because I've found that I've got continuing healthcare for my father. And um, the woman knew all about this. And I said, no, I should be feeling absolutely elated. And I've, I don't, I felt this extraordinary oddness, this flatness, this, I don't know. And my brother said, mm. congratulations. And, but I feel mm. odd. And the counsellor said, hmm, okay, that's completely understandable. It's because you've been fighting this force who've been telling you, your father's not really that ill. We're not going to award you this care, this funding mm. for the care, because mm. he's not that ill. And suddenly they've put their hands up and they've said, your father is really ill. Actually, mm -hmm. he's close yeah. to death. And she said, it's what's called anticipatory grief when you're in this conflict. You want your yes. father to die, but you don't want your father yes. to die. And suddenly yes. this outside force, the NHS, as it happened, has sort of said to you, you're right, your father's dying. 
and you're knocked back by that. And as she told me all this, when you talked about, I thought about this because when you talked about this, this massive force of outside grief, I, sounds stupid, fell off the chair. I was hit by this tsunami of grief. <gasps> I fell off the chair, literally, it sounds so ridiculous oh. to say, and lay on the floor. I could hear myself weeping. And then I picked myself up and said, sorry, because oh. I'm English. Oh. Um, but I, you know, it had come out of me. And just thinking yes. about the way after he died, he died a few months later, the way I did then see him in me, it was a sweetness. And I was able to yeah. go back to how he'd been because he didn't have an image, but he wasn't himself anymore. No, and I think that's such a powerful story. And also that thing of it's your father, the father who's looked after you and who's yeah. the figure of strength, strength. that you look up to. Yeah. And you're always a child until your exactly. parents die. Exactly. You're a child. Yeah, it's, it's weird that, isn't it? You go back and you yeah. become the child again, yeah. Yeah. And you go back home, yeah. But you're the child looking after your parents. Oh, yeah, and something so peculiar, peculiar about that. that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. That, and actually, God, thinking of my children looking after me in my future. That's really hard to deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, Nikki, thank you very much. We've ended on rather a sad note, but hopefully, you know, that thought of people living on is a sweet but and it, hopeful but it thought. Is, so it is a sad note, but it's a happy sad note, I think. I mean, I think it's not about happiness or sad. It's about just the extraordinary emotional richness and complexity of life mm, and mm, just how hard it is to do it right. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're all human, and we are so fallible. <laughs> we are so fallible. Yeah. Uh, and and vulnerability is good, isn't it? Vulnerability. Well, we're all vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, yeah. that's one of the things we're learning to go yeah. back to the very beginning yeah. and COVID. Yeah. yeah. One yeah. of the extraordinary things about living through this period is people who like to think of themselves as invulnerable have to come face to face with their yeah. vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. But well done for all you're doing. This oh. has been such a lovely conversation. I feel it could go on for hours. I feel it could actually, yes, I know. I'm looking at my <laughs> sort of dashboard here and it's, <laughs> I can see it clocking up. <laughs> I thought I would enjoy talking to you, Nikki, and I, and I really have. So thank you very much indeed. And good right. luck with your judicial and review. Good luck with all you do and mm. bravo and, <laughs> and bye-bye. Bye-bye. A happy, sad note. How wonderful. I am utterly in awe of Nikki Gerard's profound perceptions and her dazzling language and could have listened to her all day. I found that one of the most touching and tender yet forceful and thoughtful podcasts I've made. As I said to her, she provokes me. She makes me think about life and death, about grief in all its deep complexity, about the kindness of endings about inhibition and the massiveness of shame, and of course, about dementia and what it is to be part of the world and yet separate from it. Her exploration of the self and the frightening condition that strikes at the heart of our sense of who we are is utterly compelling. I've never heard anyone talk of the porous nature of self, of those with advanced dementia having lost all their defences against the world so that the world is pouring into them and they are pouring into it. A description, a definition, both beautiful and terrifying. Nikki is also, of course, as you'll now know, warm, compassionate and giving. Her book, What Dementia Teaches Us About Love, is published by Penguin and available from all good bookshops and on Amazon. And I would implore everyone to read it. It is written in the same eloquent, passionate style as its author speaks. 
Finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.